Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. My name is Hal Bryan and I'm one of your hosts. I'm EAA's Managing Editor for Print and Digital Content and Publications. And over there, staring me down across the table, my good friend and colleague. I'm Chris Henry. I'm the Museum Programs Representative and uh, one of the team here on the Green Dot. So uh, uh, excited to, to get to talk uh, about uh, our subject today, uh, how as we were preparing for today, we were sort of talking about those benchmark aircraft out there. When you talk about high speed or, or sort of pushing the limits, and right. you know, we had mentioned the SR seventy one and in the shuttle, uh, but uh, I think we all agree uh, that one of those aircraft is certainly the Concorde. Um, there's a great EAA tie there uh, as well as it had made appearances. And today we're very fortunate to talk to one of the pilots who flew the Concorde, uh, Tony Yule. Tony, thank you so much for being here today. You're very welcome. I'm pleased to be here. Well, Tony, you uh, at some point you left the RAF and you went to, uh, went to BOAC, which uh, ultimately through some machinations became uh, – British Airways somewhere around the same time Concorde came into service but what uh, can you can you tell us how uh, starting at BOAC uh, how you ended up on Concorde okay well briefly I went I applied to BOAC I was now 33 and uh, they rejected me as being too old to start I had I had a good friend of mine who was a captain, senior captain on BOAC, he said, don't put up with that nonsense. He said, write immediately again. So I wrote again, but this time, to, uh, uh, only rejected me. And then he said, write to the boss, the chairman of the company. So I did. And I got an invitation. <laughs> so I went, I, I started the DC-10 course. And uh, so I did that uh, for, uh, as a, you start as a first officer, or oh, actually, second officer. In fact, when you start, then you get become a first officer, uh, and then you know, well, a progression up to captaincy. And uh, yes, yeah, so, so while I was there, and I, and and I was at home, Concord came into uh, into being. That we used to live in a, in a village called, uh, near, very near Bryce Norton, where they were doing their training. And we used to hear it all the time. And I was determined that I did it. I wanted to go and do a concord. But you, you know, you you couldn't have you couldn't have inexperienced people. So you had to have people with several thousand hours, and you had to be recommended to do it, and all the rest of it. Um, and finally, uh, in really in nineteen eighty seven, I uh, I got the opportunity. I was I was invited to. Uh, attend the Concord course. I didn't realize that at the time that you had to, you, they, they looked at your record. So I had a clean record. I hadn't, hadn't got any failures, you know, instrument ratings and things like that. Uh, and I started the course, which, uh, which, to be honest with you, was quite long. <laughs> six, it was a total <laughs> of six months. A total of six months. Um, I was on course number 11 and uh, we had some Oh, uh, oh, that might be an idea. And that might be able to include a photograph for you that of what we did at the end of the course. I've got some really quite interesting pictures. But uh, it was 
it was just amazing. It truly, the grounds, the ground school. Um, well, it was it, it was uh, seven weeks in the ground school, um, with an exam every every week, and uh, on the on the week's work you've just done, um, and then you you would progress to the next week. So you would have you'd have questions, double sets of questions, and that, that was for seven weeks. Uh, the, the lunches were extremely good, and they gave us a, sh- a sherry to drink at lunch every day in the canteen. <laughs> I, 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 put a, I put on a kilo. <laughs> so, then having finished that, um, we went to do to the cardboard bomber uh, in, up in London, at the headquarters there to do to do the checklists and things like that, and then back down to do the simulator. Now the simulator was in Bristol Filton, the home well, the home of Concorde uh, in Britain and uh, Toulouse in France. So the uh, only two flight simulators, there's one in Toulouse and one in Bristol. So uh, and the the course then was um, oh how long did we do? Did fourteen. Simulators over seven weeks or something like that. There, there were two there, two simulators a week. They were each each was about of six hours. So there was a two hour two hour briefing, four hours in the box. You get a break halfway through, and then an hour's debrief afterwards, or it could be an hour's brief and then a two hour debrief, depending on how well you had done. And I, I I just seem to remember I spent all of my time up and around. 60,000 feet, handling an aeroplane, double engine failure, engine failure, pressurization failure, and how quickly we could get the Concorde down to 41,000 feet, um, where you could actually be on a, you know, 100% oxygen. So, it, and I don't, I don't, I think the first normal takeoff I did um, was actually on the, you know, I think when I, Actual normal one was when I did when I passed the course and doing a passenger trip, my first passenger assessment trip. So it was it was, it was a long it was a long it was a long way from home, and we stayed in we stayed in the local hotel, and every, it was just it was superb. It, and we used to meet we used to meet every night, have a talk about the questions, and and discuss everything, and. Uh, I won't. I won't do the humour story today. But where I did, I was responsible for the humour and, and making it all relax. So we we would do an hour's talk, you know, hours preparation in the evening. Go and have dinner. Come back in and do a bit of study, and then you know, start the whole day the next day. It, I tell you what, the course and the people we had on the course was really there were only six of us on the course, but it was really, really a, a super time. It's stressful, but uh, a super time. Wow. So can you can you tell us about your first flight, your first real flight in Concord? Oh, yeah. Now, that's another thing. Okay, here we go. We go. We go. The first flight I did as, was done from Prestwick. Now, it is a training flight. And uh, uh, John Cook, Captain John Cook, who, who flew con- the uh, Concord into Oshkosh in 85 and 88, he was the first one there. He was the flight training manager. So we get up to uh, to Prestwick, and he says to me, oh, I'm the briefing. Anyway, right, Tony, he says, I want you just to, um, is it going to be a full power takeoff? And I want you to uh, 
level off at 2,500 feet. That's it. And, and, two, and 250 knots. <laughs> I thought, that's not a problem. I've been doing that all my life. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. At, at the lightweight we were, we were, we were about 100 and maximum 120 tons, remembering she was 180, 80 tons at, at max takeoff weight. So very, very light. She, has, she had, at that weight, the performance of an F1 sports car. The standard calls are, okay, so there's, there's no gentle opening up the throttles to 60% in one as you would do on a, in a Boeing 747 or, you know, it's whatever, in minor airplanes. It's, it's, it's all electronic controls. So you s- slam the throttles fully indecently forward and uh, it, it, it leaps off out of the ground. It just rushed off down the runway. And I, I heard the engineer, you know, I, I, somebody called Pat 100 knots. I think it was a training. Yeah, John, John Cook, 100 knots. And it was V1, rotate. <clears throat> I'm pulling the stick back to 20, 20, 20, about 23, 24 degrees. Pitching up there, and we're climbing like a homesick angel. And I see the height coming up this. I think, oh, God. And I, I hear the engineer call three, two, one noise. He cancels the afterburner. Uh, and I start, you know, and I start to push the stick over when now we're all floating up in, in our harnesses. I go up through <laughs> two and a half thousand feet, up through three and a half thousand feet. And I finally get this, this bucket. <laughs> Bronco under control at about 4,800 feet. It was unreal. <laughs> and the, oh the two of them in the flight deck were just rolling around laughing. What I didn't know was it does that to every pilot who starts. So you start off your career <laughs> just doing it that. I mean, it, really exciting. <laughs> but I, you, you, <laughs> that's, and, the, and of course, a real takeoff is very different. It's much, it's, it's much more genteel, but it's, a, it's, still, it's still a thrill. Wow. So what was next, uh, next from there? How, how soon after that was your first, uh, first experience with, with, uh, real passengers in the back? Ah, well, okay. So what, what it is after that, then you have, having completed the course, <clears throat> you then have to do uh, six, uh, check flights with, uh, not with a trip, not with a training team, because that means that, you know, you're like, uh, pupils marking your own, your own test papers. So Captain Dave Leaney, who was the flight training manager, he used to do those those checks. And Dave was a, became a really good friend of mine. He's for XRAF as well. Anyway, so we 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 did we did the trip. I think I think I did two. Yeah, they were there were two to New York, some to Miami. Um, which is always, you know, which was one of our destinations at the time. Um, but the, the fascinating thing is, when you're sitting on the end of the runway, you, you're looking down and you, you're ready to go. You've done all the briefings and everything, covered the emergencies or everything else. Huh? At Heath, London Heathrow and, and every airport wherever she went, you knew there would be a thousand pairs of eyes looking at you, half of which would be pilots, wishing they were sitting in your seat. You know, to do it. And it, it it's it's really is. It's 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 actually quite emotional. But it you know, and you're sitting down there and then you know 
everybody's ready. Okay, three, two, one now. And you slam the throttles forward and off we go. And it's, it's a little more gentle than the, <laughs> the acceleration in this one. Um, and it just, it, it just works like magic. You get to pull the nose up to about 13 degrees uh, and you, you fly that and it's all through the standard calls where they, where they, you, you go for noise abatement time is time for each particular runway uh, based on the conditions and the wind conditions and the, and the weights and the, all, all sorts of things like that. Uh, and you follow the procedures until you get to, uh, in those days, at, at 6,000 feet, uh, when air traffic control said to you there's no speed restriction, um, you could then start to increase above speed. Oh, of course, I have to tell you, of course, we have the nose and visor. As I think people have all seen that famous nose and visor. So the nose is, the nose is lowered to five degrees from the takeoff. Um, and it's only lowered to the final position, the 12 and a half degrees, uh, for coming into land. So when you've taken off and you're up there, the five, nose at five degrees, you're 6,000 feet, uh, 250, 260 knots, something like that. Air traffic controls say there's no speed, so you then call for the uh, for the after takeoff checklist, as uh, raising the device, raising the nose first, so the lever in front of the, the first officer, uh, three positions. So you put it up to the, the nose comes up, and then when the nose is locked up, you then select the the sorry the. The Hughes then select the visor up, and that comes in, and it all gets very, very quiet. And then you start to accelerate up to uh, three, three hundred knots. Three maximum speed is three is, is three sixty at at, uh, at that altitude. Now the problem is, as you know, that con- I used to tell the passengers, you know, that all this this airplane, all this noise that we make, you know, we do we do keep as quiet as we can. As we turn around Windsor Castle, avoiding him, her, and the and, and the corgis, but but the <laughs> I didn't I didn't understand that the the VC ten uh, had a footprint across of the airway known as Green One, which basically was uh, basically due west. Um, and so what what happens is you would, you would until until you got past uh, Reading, which was a bit, 30 miles away or something like that, you could then you could then start to climb up when they're giving you clearance, increasing the power by 1% or 2% every 1,000 feet and, until you got to 8,000 feet when you had full climb, climb power. And she would climb at um, about mm, 4,000 feet a minute, 5,000 feet a minute, depending on the day and, the, wow. and, and that. Um, until you got up to your cruising altitude of, of 28,000 feet. But what happened in the meantime, because it's costing fuel, and it was costing noise too, because at 250 knots, you got, you're, you're pitching up somewhere around five to six degrees. So the noise level going down to the ground was actually quite high. And it was, it was causing people to, to complain a little bit. One of our pilots suggested to the boss, Listen, why don't we just why don't we just go for broke right from the word go? Um, so that meant we we still kept a sort of similar profile, but with, with the airplane clean and it's and passing over Reading at at about four or five thousand feet, we're only three degrees nose up, 
there was less noise going down on the ground, and the and the people were very happy. So we achieved we we, we saved time, saved fuel, and and the public were happy. Just magic. <laughs> it just that's remarkable. Yeah. Now, what was the difference in in climb rate at that point? If you're doing three degrees versus the the five or so to keep the speed lower, you're still you're still maintaining the noise the noise profile. So you're you're passing over Reading at, at faster. So you pass over instead of passing over, let's say in um, in ninety seconds, it would probably be about um, forty five seconds or something like that. So you pass over quickly, um, and once you once you get past and you're allowed to continue climbing. You did the same procedure again. You just increase the incre- incremental inc- uh, power increases right up to the full climb power. So it was a it it was gr- it was great, and you maintained. You say so when you when you got up to uh, twenty eight thousand feet, you you well, you, you, some people had the autopilot in. Um, okay, on those early days, I did because I did it procedurally, but actually. I, for over half of my time on Concord. So I was on six years on the fleet, some two and a half thousand hours of, of supersonic flight. Uh, I only used the autopilot less than half the time. Only if, only if the conditions became... She was a fantastic aeroplane. Uh, honestly, I tell you, at twice at Mach 2, twice the speed of sound, 1,350 miles an hour. I think it's 2,000 plus, you know, uh, kilometers an hour. But she handled beautifully. You know, the, I, I proved it sometimes. You know, um, half a degree pitch change, up or down, could make a, a rate of climb of at least 1,500 feet a minute, up or down. That's how. Gosh, half a degree. So you, you know, wow. so. So you're Mach two, but your but your airspeed indicator was about five hundred knots. So you can imagine on any aeroplane you're flying, uh, you know, the, okay, if you if you're in a Piper Cub, you can push the stick backwards and forward quite a lot, and it won't make much difference. But if you're flying a fairly high performance business jet, you know, you don't do that <laughs> to the aeroplane because <laughs> it, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, it was. Uh, I don't know. It was just fantastic. You, you, you ended up to 28,000 feet cruising at Mach 0.95 until you came to um, a point where you'd start the, to do the acceleration. Well, the, the, the thing about that is, of course, because with the, with the accelerating Concorde, the center of pressure started to move, would start to move aft. Uh, and so the engineer would start moving the fuel uh, some few minutes before to, to, to keep the center of gravity because that is center of gravity control. Without it, it's, it's, it's a complete mess. And that's what happened, you know, because that happened in the Concorde crash. But the, uh, you do that and you, you just, ex- you, and you accelerate to when, when it's time for the acceleration, the throttles go fully forward uh, after bonus is selected and you, I do all there's a spiel to the passengers, but it's too long to do on here. But it's but it's. Uh, I was always a great believer in talking about. I'm, I'm, I love the airplane, and I love I love talking to the passengers about it. You know, I'm, I'm so I'm so I don't know enthusiastic to fly airplanes. It, it, it's it's just <laughs> it's another world. 
a total another world, you know. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, and so you it, you very quickly pass through Mac one, and you maintain the status quo, full power afterburners in until you reach a height of forty three and a half thousand feet, and or Mach one point seven, almost one and three quarter times the speed of sound. Um, when they, the afterburners, they've done their useful work in getting you through the area of high resistance, and you switch the uh, the afterburners off. Actually, they, they've done that, but on in pairs and off in pairs, and you tell the passengers, you feel a, a slight nudge throughout the airplane. You know, that, and passing through Mach 1, do you remember the old, the old um, this, uh, there was a film about uh, high-speed flight, where airplanes used to shake to pieces as they approach the speed of sound. <laughs> this is like, it, it slides, you know, the, you, you, all you know on the flight deck is you've, you've passed it, you've gone through the speed of sound as the shock wave attaches itself to the front of the nose, slides down past the static ports. You get a blip on the rate of climb and descent indicator, and that shows you you're now supersonic. You're fully supersonic at... Um, at 50,190 feet exactly, um, well, I say exactly, but that's in, in standard atmosphere, but that's, uh, that's at 50,190 feet. And then you, you gain height simply by cruise climbing. You, you, you're given a clearance to climb to, uh, up, up, uh, cruise climb up to 60,000 feet. We never did make 60,000 feet on the way across to New York. Average was about fifty-eight thousand feet, but it was just—it was fantastic. And you know, and the airplane, of course, is one of the other tricks of it, because you're—you're—it's a—it's a—it's a metal air, metal tube. It's a straight line dart. You know, you can't do anything exciting with it. You can't do. <laughs> uh, you know, as an example, if you wanted to do a turn at Mach two. You have to maintain Mach two because once you come down below Mach two, you can't you can't put the afterburners in to start again. So it is a fixed flying machine, really. It's it's a, it, in super cruise we call it above you know above fifty thousand feet. But if you wanted if you had to do a turn, the radius of turn was sixty two statute miles. Sixty two oh statute <laughs> exactly, and you would burn. 6,500 kilos of fuel to do it. And you, and you, only, had, you, only, had, you only had 96 tons when you started. If you did that, you, had, wouldn't, have, <clears throat> you wouldn't have enough fuel left for, you know, for a go-around at your destination airport. So we never did, we never did, um, did anything like that at all. So just... <laughs> so, and it was great. And during and during the cruise, the airplane stretched about eight to ten inches due to the heat. And you could wow, the only that's... place you could you could only place you could see that was on the flight deck. <clears throat> and if you look at the picture of the flight deck and see the engineer's position to the his the right hand end of his pa of his panel, there is a there is a gap. It's about the thickness, well, let's say two or three mil. Um, as it is now, but when you when you get up to and you've been long in uh, in super cruise at, at Mach two, that can expand if you do it the full the full cycle of, up there. You can actually get your hand in 
and in between the gap. Oh my gosh. Now, the, the, obviously wanting to remove it before you start to decelerate. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. Well, the, the, oh, on, on the, one of the last flights, the, <clears throat> the captain on the airplane uh, got, took his hat off, gave it to the engineer and said, put it in the gap. And it's on, it's on the airplane in one of the museums. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> yes, <laughs> and it, it can never, it can never be, got, it can never be, never be got out. <laughs> <laughs> but do you have? A, let me ask you: do, do you have a favorite flight that stands out for you on Concorde? Is there one that stands out more than another? Yes, um, uh, I, I think I had to say the particular one was doing the Christmas flights to a town called, or an airport called Rovaniemi, which is in Lapland. Now, you guys say Father Christmas is in Greenland. No, sorry, that's BS. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a picture of me, uh, which I'll include for you. Um, we're standing with Father Christmas in Lapland and his reindeer, um, and I met Mrs. Christmas as well. She was lovely. Fell in love with her straight away. <laughs> she, but <laughs> he he used to meet the, every airplane that came in, especially well, every Concorde that came in. He would be on the ramp, the ramp, the ice sheet, <laughs> and um, and he would, uh, you know, do the do the marshalling in, bring us to a stop, and then he would then greet, he'd say hello to all the passengers as they came down. You know, get into their uh, into their buses and things to be taken off to the hotel to start their Christmas day. And and on one particular occasion, <clears throat> which was really very good, I had uh, we went to the hotel and we were there, and Father Christmas came in as he usually did, but this time he bought the reindeer, and the rain, the reindeer was in into this huge room where all, where all everybody was seated and things like that. They stayed. They stayed a reasonable amount of time, but you know the reindeer was you know didn't get distressed, but they didn't want him to be in you know, too much trouble, so they you know they took him out afterwards. But that that was the most memorable memorable one, absolutely. <laughs> well, I I always wondered on the the Concorde cruise, did you guys uh, see yourselves as sort of ambassadors for the aircraft or for the airline? Uh, you you were you were, I, I mean <clears throat> you were expected to uh, I think you were expected to behave we were we were the ambassadors for it but at the same time the one or two <laughs> one or two got out of line um, so there were you know there were they were characters you, you're bound to look and you, you're going to get in in what okay. I tell people, say, but you know, oh gosh, you must be good. You're the best of the best. I said, no, I'm not. I said, you, you know, I tell you what, who could be the best of the best would be a 737 captain flying six sectors a day, you know, and flying at all conditions and things like that, um, compared to, to us where we're just doing one sector. I said, we have, you know, people say to me, I've, I, I, we've stopped to display, you know, arrived at the airport um, as, a, as a goodwill visit there um, and they'd come on board and they said you can have my airplane you know you can come and fly you know my airplane I said excuse me I'm going to give you a bit of advice never 
never, never, never offer a Concorde pilot your aeroplane. He will not only <laughs> kill himself, but he'll wreck your aeroplane. We <laughs> haven't a clue about small heads. We don't know about small aeroplanes. Um, so honestly, it's wow. true, we don't. Um, so, wow. it, it, no, but it, 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 yeah, I think it, to me, it was just an exciting job. You didn't, you know, you didn't, I was asked for a BBC radio program. They said, uh, um, but because I, I, I filled in that story about the vampire and the falling out of sky and they invited me to come onto this particular program. And the question was asked, he asked me, um, what's it like, you know, being in the bar, wearing the uniform and saying, I am a Concorde pilot. <laughs> I said, JP, please. We don't do things like that. First of all, we don't drink in uniform. Um, you know, and we don't go around the world saying, I'm a Concorde pilot. Can you can you imagine the commentary that come your way, you know? Um A hole would be a would be a, would be a nice one, but there would <laughs> <laughs> No, come on. No, we we had we had enough prima donnas and the, and yes. It, it did. I tell you, if I'm being honest about it, it did affect. It did affect. You know, as I said, it, it, affect, it did affect my relationship at home. But it, it, it not the not the best of, of things to do. I'm not, I'm not proud of what I did. <clears throat> I do tell people on the stage about these things, and I say, you know, I said, but you know, I've grown up now. You know, that's that's what those, you, you tell people. The only difference between men and boys is the quality, size, and price of their toys. I couldn't afford to buy a Concorde, <laughs> but I could afford to fly to to fly one that they let me do it. <laughs> That's terrific. Well, Beautiful. Tony, we're uh, just about to the end of the uh, the episode here, but I wanted to ask one more question. Um, you know, we we mentioned at the beginning, and Chris did about uh, iconic aircraft, and um, it the the last uh, you know say thirty years of uh, aviation somewhere in that time frame was kind of unusual because we've seen. We've seen things uh, retire without being replaced or superseded. You know, you think from from 1903 and the Wright brothers, 66 years later, we had the moon landing, the 747 and Concorde all in that same year. Yep. And then Concorde retires, of course, under uh, under painful and, and tragic circumstances. But but now we we can't go that fast anymore. I can't buy a ticket and go Mach two uh, across the Atlantic. Um, can you speak to how does that make you feel? Number one, and then number two, there are some companies out there that are that are working at, at least on a smaller scale, trying to bring supersonic travel back to the civilian populace. Uh, and do you see anything there that's uh, interesting to you? Yeah, well, look, I tell you what, Con- Concord, the initial design thing was was time for uh, to do 4,500 cycles. Now, what is a cycle? A cycle is caking air at the Concorde up to Mach 2. Even if you just do it and come back down again, that is one supersonic cycle. Or whether you go up and you, do, you fly the whole way across the Atlantic, that is one supersonic cycle. So 4,500 of those. At the end, coming approaching that, they then did some testing on the aeroplane, the stress testing, or the uh, deep um, testing, and they found that the, the, the actually Concord was in damn good shape. So they extended it to 6,000 cycles. 
But the problem was going to was going was going to come that the uh, it was costing a lot. Fuel prices were going up. Everything was going up, um, and it was it. It was becoming a point where it was going to have to come to, come to a halt at some time, and you know that was sad as it was, but that but that's re- that was the reality of it, because look, when I first joined, it was uh, four thousand dollars to go one way. Okay, and and because I've spoken to you, on the, there is a special deal for you. I, I could have given you a special deal to come back again. It's four thousand dollars. there was no deal but the best deal was was the Concord Cunard operation so you went out the best way to go was to go westbound because you you got the benefit of the time saving so you you paid two um, two and a half thousand pounds to do a Concord one way stay two or three nights in the downtown um, hotel in New York and come back on the QE2 so that's 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 where the saving, you know, that that was a saving, and that became very very popular, and it's it, it, it was really really superb. What an amazing juxtaposition! Yeah, uh, but she's not here now, and that was very that was very sad, and it was an unnecessary. Yeah, well, we might you might want to do another podcast sometime about the crash. That's that was a okay. I'll just cover. It's a political assassination. That's all I'll say about it. Anyway, the uh, but let's just qu- quickly look at boom. Blake Skoll, I know Blake very well, um, and actually I spoke to him the other day uh, and asked him about the engines because Rolls, it said in the press release that Rolls-Royce has stopped doing the engines for um, for Boom, Boom Supersonic, and you can put that into Google, and it's a wonderful story of, of, of the aeroplane uh, to be. Anyway, he, uh, he told me that basically uh, <laughs> Rolls-Royce is, is running out of money. They never were in the in the running for it. Uh, there is going to be an exciting event announcement sometime in the not too distant future about the engines for for Boom. And uh, they, they, it's okay. It's now. I mean, the man. Can you imagine? He's he, he's he isn't a, he, he's a, he's a future thinker. He actually changed the whole design halfway through the project from a three engine aeroplane. To a four-engine, external engines, and it's—I mean, it's—it's it's incredible. So yes, it's—it's it's only about Mac 1.7. It doesn't matter. It's still going to be—he's still going to be getting to New York faster than anybody else. It's still—and—and and also, quite so quiet, burning fossil fuels and everything else, and the destinations all over the world. They've sold—you know—continental Japan Airlines. Uh, is it TWA? I think anyway, there are three companies that have invested heavily, um, and he, he can't stop raising money. <laughs> it's just <laughs> so I, I, I actually wrote to him and said, "Listen, I said to Blake, I want to be on the, the first of your, you know, your flights where you allow a passenger. Um, I want to come down. I want to, I want to bring my grandson. He's to, he's uh, almost. He'll be three um, in October, and uh, I want to take him." With me uh, and my son David, who is an F thirty five B flight instructor, uh, in also in the Royal Air Force, and I, I would like to take them on just to go across to, to say I've done it. 
because we we were all invited, you know, all the Concord, well, a, a, a bunch of us were invited from by Blake back in, uh, was it, to 2016, to go to Denver, Colorado, uh, and to talk to him about all the, 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 the goods and the bad things about, about Concord so they could learn from it and, and put it in, you know, and put into their design. So it, I couldn't go, unfortunately. I just had a hip operation, and I wasn't very, you know, I wasn't very manoeuvrable. But I'm, I'm hoping, if, if I can do, um, I'm going to fly over to see the, the test run of his, uh, the, the, the test aeroplane, uh, which, is called, uh, which is called Baby Boom. But anyway, but if in, in Google you can look at, just look under over, uh, Boom Supersonic Overture, and you can have a look at it. It's going to be a magic aeroplane. I'm really excited, but I'm really looking forward to it. Well, that is uh, quite a ringing endorsement. Uh, and we did a, uh, a short thing in our innovation section in Sport Aviation Magazine about Boom Supersonic just within the last couple of months. So you can also... Uh, Certainly, read about it. Uh, read about it there. Uh, it's it's going to be exciting to see what happens. I think we're all uh, have our fingers crossed. We've seen some other companies. Uh, Arion was another one, but uh, has I, I believe sort of dropped out of the running uh, to to bring us back to an era of supersonic travel. I one of my great regrets was never doing uh, the the Concorde trip and especially the Concorde uh, Cunard. Uh, pairing where you know going going over at uh, at Mach two and coming back at thirty knots uh, in a in a week on a beautiful uh, ocean liner. Well, yes. How much we would have loved to have done that, but uh, but maybe uh, still uh, still in our lifetimes we'll get that chance. And here's hoping. But speaking of time, we are just about out of it, uh, Tony. So uh, so we're going to need to go ahead and wrap up here. A quick a quick finish. I used to tell people on the cruise ship, I'm, I was I'm so used to flying at twenty three miles per minute. One mile every two and three quarter, two and three quarter seconds. I'm on the cruise cruise ship where it's it's, it's twenty it's, it's twenty three minutes a mile. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's easy to remember anyway. Yeah, well, easy. Two very different ways of traveling in style, but uh, but what a pairing that must have been. And here's hoping. Here's hoping we see something like that again uh, in the near future. Uh, Tony, thank you so much for taking some time with us today, and uh, and especially you being extra accommodating at the beginning. We had some technical uh, issues before we could start recording. We really appreciate your patience uh, and generosity. Thank you, thank you and, both very much. No, thank you both very much. And uh, if you if you're over here, you know, coming coming my way, send me a message, and we'll you know we'll we'll certainly meet. Uh, was whatever. That'd be an honor. That would be an honor. Uh, but uh, the the pleasure and privilege is all ours. So, so thanks to you, uh, Tony. Thanks to uh, everyone out there for listening. Uh, as always, please keep those uh, reviews coming on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcasts. We love seeing uh, email to feedback at ea.org and comments on the uh, web pages that go up with these posts uh, at inspire.ea.org. Tony mentioned a couple of pictures, so we'll see if we can get those uh, uh, posted on that uh, episode page as well. So even if you do normally get this via iTunes, you may want to head over uh, to inspire.ea.org and, uh, and see some of uh, Tony's images. With that, thanks again to everyone. Uh, we really appreciate all the listeners and all the great feedback and we look forward to catching up to you next time at whatever speed when you're cleared to land on the green dot. <laughs>